Morning, Redeemer. Morning. Uh, as always, grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is certainly good to be here with you this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Travell, um, and I've been a member here at Redeemer for about six or seven years now, and I serve primarily with our uh, kids um, in lower and upper elementary and also in our middle school and high school ministries. Um, and on occasion... Uh, the elders allow me the opportunity to serve you in this way this morning with the word of the Lord. Um, so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, um, would you please turn them on and scroll to Acts chapter 7. Um, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts. And um, as you can see in your bulletin, we're looking at Acts chapter 7. We have quite a large section to cover this morning. Uh, so we're going to, as you're finding a way there, I'm going to pray for us, our time together, and um, we'll get started. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. For in all the earth there is none like you. Father, we've gathered this morning to worship you because there is none like you. Uh, you're great and greatly to be praised. And so as we worship you this morning through singing and prayer and the reading of your word and the taking of communion. And Father, now we stand to uh, hear the proclaiming of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the truths of the scriptures today, that you would remove distractions, that we can hear clearly what the spirit is speaking to us, that we'll be able to see and identify the ways in which we have replaced you, the throne of our life, and placed idols where you should be. Help us uh, to not just to be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but help us to be um, effectual doers of your word. And, and as always, it is our prayer that you, by the Spirit of God, would use the word of God to reveal unto us the Son of God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so what we're going to do is we're just going to um, walk through uh, Stephen's um, sermon this morning and we'll stop on certain points to make some observations and some applications at certain points and so uh, we've already learned a little bit about Stephen. Um, Stephen was one of the seven leaders who was chosen from the early church. Uh, he was a dynamic man. He was full of the Holy Ghost. He was full of faith, full of grace, full of power and, and he came about preaching uh, to the Jews um, who were removed from Israel and he was preaching uh, to the Hellenist Jews that were scattered. And, and then they came to Jerusalem to uh, maintain the synagogue. And then he went into the synagogues. And there he wasn't just preaching to the Palestinian Jews. He was preaching to um, the Grecian Jews and proclaiming ultimately the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of the power of his message and the miracles that he had performed, he was arrested. And he was charged with blasphemy. And they said, here are the charges that were brought against him, that he blasphemes God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And so we'll see today that he's going to try to defend himself against these charges that have been brought against him. He's been charged of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And these are the most sacred things in Israel. So Stephen sets out here to defend himself in front of this council, which is uh, like the Supreme Court of Israel here in chapter 7. 
And so what's happening here is that the church is beginning to explode. Um, it's already exploded in Jerusalem and people are being saved and mighty things are happening. Miracles are happening and by hundreds and perhaps thousands uh, people are being saved and coming to Jesus and the resurrected Jesus, he has uh, gone to the Father and he has sent out the Holy Spirit to empower this new dynamic church. And they're really doing a good job here. And, and, and they've become a threat to the religious leaders of the day. They've become a threat to Judaism. And this threat itself is not just contained in Jerusalem, but it's starting to extend itself out um, beyond Jerusalem. And then the religious leaders of the day, they panic. They can realize that their whole system that they built up is now can be torn apart at the seams seamlessly because no one can stop this movement of Christianity. And so Stephen becomes a, a very powerful and dynamic voice for Christianity. And so they must stop Stephen even as they tried to stop Peter and John. And so what they do is they capture him and they charge him with blasphemy and they have him all trumped up on these charges uh, based off some witnesses and so now as we come to chapter 7, this is where we are. And uh, this morning there is one overarching idea, sentence that we can kind of, I want us to see this morning to focus and to take away with. And this is our main idea of the sermon here to be this. Do not resist the rule, the redemption, and the power of Christ. Do not resist the rule, the redemption, and the power of Christ what we're going to look at here. So ultimately what we're going to do again, we're just going to walk through it and we'll start here. So we come to verse one and what happens in verse one is that the high priest, he steps up and he asks them, are these things so about you? So there's charges that have been brought against Stephen. This is a big deal. Again, this is essentially the Supreme Court that he's standing before and the high priest steps up and he wants to know, are the accusations that have been laid against you true? Because there's kind of a tension in the room because everybody knows what will happen if he is found guilty of these charges. Um, and we don't really see this in the text, but you got to imagine that uh, Stephen has a choice to make here. He, he has a decision to make right here, right? We can understand how he can maybe become a little, uh, a little shifty, if you will, uh, uh, right here trying to find a way to save himself all the while while trying to be faithful and trying to walk that tightrope. Uh, but you got to understand something about Stephen. He didn't start preaching because he wanted to make everybody happy. Stephen started preaching because he loves Jesus. He's preaching because he has had an encounter with the living God and that has changed his entire life. And he believes that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And because of that, he doesn't fear man. He has been emboldened to be a witness no matter what the cost. And we can make a note there that that should be a mark of the life of a believer. Because we've had an encounter with the living God, we should be emboldened to be a witness no matter what the cost. And so Stephen knows he is a follower of Jesus he's heard the teachings of Christ he he knows that this kind of situation would have come up eventually at some point in his life 
Jesus himself warned about this. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 beginning at verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He tells them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Right? This is what Jesus said and we've already seen that in the book of Acts in chapters 4 and 5. Matthew 10 verse 18, Jesus continues, he says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. For when they deliver you over, listen, do not be, what? Do not be anxious. Do not be afraid of how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is what Stephen knows. He's called here in the midst of these men and he knows that he does not need to compromise because he knows that Jesus doesn't lie. He knows the promises of God are true. Jesus promised to be with you even in the midst of this kind of situation. He would have grown up knowing the stories of Daniel and the lion den. He's, he would have heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. He would have known the promises of God and his ability to deliver. So no matter what, no matter what leads, uh, uh, what this comes of this, he knows that he's with Jesus. And, and if you're with Jesus, you're going to be all right. And really quickly before we move on, I think it's important to note here um, that suffering for Jesus is a privilege. Uh, suffering for Jesus is a privilege that we should never aim to avoid. Suffering for Jesus is a privilege that we should never aim to avoid. And don't hear me saying that we should go looking for trouble. We shouldn't go looking for persecution. In fact, the, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, as he teaches us how to pray, to do not lead us into temptation. That's crazy to go looking for it, but we should know that if we are following Jesus faithfully, there will be trouble. There will be persecution. There will be suffering if you follow Jesus. And, and if you're here today and you are a believer and you say that you are a believer and you have no kind of, any kind of uh, persecution or suffering or trouble in your life, on account of your Christian faith, um, I would just love to talk to you and, and, and hear how your life is going. I just want to know, are you witnessing? Are you sharing the gospel with other people? Is there no one in your life who thinks you're absolutely crazy for the faith that you have? Because if you're here today and you say that you're a believer and you have no uh, persecution or trouble or suffering on account of your faith, I would say that you may not be following Jesus as closely as you think you are. Because if you are being bold for Jesus Christ, he says that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Jesus tells us to rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. And so the way to glory is oftentimes accompanied by suffering. But there's good news even in the midst of that, that he will be with us. 
he will be with us. So as we come to verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2 through 53 is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And what Stephen is doing here is that he's going to prove to them, one, that he is not a blasphemer, but in fact, they are the blasphemers. And there are basically two major themes that I'm going to point out for us that run all the way through this sermon that Stephen gives. These are the two things that we're going to kind of focus on in this particular sermon. First of all, he's going to demonstrate that Israel has a history of rejecting deliverers that God sends them. Israel has a history of rejecting deliverers and redeemers and saviors that God sends them. And secondly, we'll see that Israel has a history of replacing God's presence with idols. And that's what he's going to consistently bring up for them. You are consistently re rejecting and replacing God. Let's read verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out of your land and from your kindred and go into a land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob on the 12th patriarchs. And so we'll pause right there. He begins, there's a lot here to cover that we don't have time to, but basically what it does is Stephen, he begins with the history of God calling Abraham to leave his life as an idolater and to follow the promise of God into a new land. And so we see God's presence was in Mesopotamia calling Abraham out so that he would follow him and he's leading him by the promise. And so Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son and his sons had 12 sons. And so that's where we get the 12 tribes from. And one of those 12 sons, one of them was named Joseph. Now, uh, really quickly before we get to Joseph, uh, Stephen begins to show here, I want you to notice this, he begins to show that his views about the law and about God's promises are not at all opposed to what the scriptures clearly teach. And so everyone so far, they can be nodding their head along with, with Stephen. Like, uh-huh, yeah, we get that, amen. And so everything that he's saying, he's teaching consistently with the scriptures. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Notice that, underline that. But God was with him. Even in the midst of your suffering, God will be with you. That's good news. Verse 10, and he rescued him out of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, in Canaan, and the great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph 
made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summons Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. And our fathers... And they were uh, carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hermon and Shechem. So think about this. I want you to just think about Joseph for a second. Joseph is a son who is uh, loved by the father and who is given a public symbol of affection by the father. So much so that his brothers were jealous of him. And this, this Joseph, the one that God has his hand on, they put him to death basically by throwing him into a pit. But he was raised up and he was sold off to the Gentiles and where he would go on to become a king. And then the family came in the land and the, now the king who they rejected ended up being a dealer in, in the bread of life so that all people can come unto him and live. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like anyone you know? The answer, it should sound like Jesus. Joseph is a type. He is pointing to Jesus. He's making this case for here. They were jealous of Joseph's, uh, his exaltation by the father, so they rejected him. And by rejecting him, they were ultimately rejecting God. Let's continue reading verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew, new, which drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt scrutinily with, his, uh, with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. And at this time, note this, verse 20, at this time Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And when Moses instructed Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians and he was, watch this, verse 22, he was mighty in words and in deeds. So just want you to note that. Moses was mighty in words and deeds. He's making a parallel. He wants, he's laying this case here. Moses was mighty in words and deeds, just like Jesus, just like Stephen. He wants them to listen to what he's saying. Here, God sends a deliverer. He was mighty in words and deeds, but yet they reject him. They do not listen to him. Verse 23. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged and uh, defeated, he defeated the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So they were ignorant, the children of Israel were ignorant of the salvation that was happening right in front of them that God was giving to them through Moses. They didn't understand it. Verse 26, and on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, are you brothers? Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbors, it's hilarious, the man who was wronging his neighbors thrust him aside saying, who made you, listen to what he accuses him of, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now, 
When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai and in the flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their groanings and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So he's laying out this case. So now we see he sends Moses to deliver them and he kills an Egyptian and the Bible says that they did not understand the salvation that was happening in front of them. So Moses flees into the wilderness for 40 more years and then God comes to him in a burning bush and says, where you're standing is holy ground. I'm sending you back to Egypt because I've heard the affliction and the cries of my people. So God yet again sends them another deliverer. He's already tried to deliver them once through Moses. They rejected him. Moses flees, but God goes back to him and says, go back. He sends them back again. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you, listen to what they, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God has sent both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So we'll consistently see these similar themes coming up over and over and over again. They uh, rejected Moses. Israel rejected Moses. He was a man who did signs and wonders, just like Stephen, just like Jesus. This Moses became a ruler and a redeemer to deliver Israel from the oppression of their enemies, just like Stephen, just like Jesus. But instead of them humbly uh, receiving him, they rejected Moses. And so Israel has a history of rejecting their redeemers. God's presence is not always in the temple. Sometimes the presence of God is found in Mesopotamia calling out Abraham. Sometimes the presence of God is in Egypt delivering his people. Sometimes it's in uh, a burning bush in the wilderness. God is greater than a temple. He doesn't need a temple. And you can see kind of what's going to happen as we go along in this story. Verse 37. This Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So notice here, Joseph is a picture pointing forward. Moses is a picture pointing forward. And this, by the way, is the entirety of the Old Testament. There is a constant uh, anthem. There is a constant theme of one singular thread flowing all the way out through the Old Testament. And it's someone is coming. They're pointing. Someone is going to come. Someone is coming to fix the world. Someone is coming to save the world. And everything in the Old Covenant is pointing towards that one that is to come. And we know that that one to come was Jesus. In verse uh, 38, and this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness and the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us 
And our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to an idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So again, constant theme here. Notice that they rejected their redeemer and they replaced God's presence with an idol. That's what they were doing here. They turned away from the living God and the person that he was sending to help save them and deliver them and they turned to idols. And I just want to note as we continue on here that I don't want you to make this some kind of far off thing that's happening to the children of Israel. This is you and I. We consistently, because of our sin, cave into that and we replace the living God and the Savior that he has sent to save us and replace idols. Instead of having God on the throne of our hearts, we consistently remove him and put an idol there. Doesn't matter the idol, you can examine your own heart and know what it is, but we often do this. We reject God and replace God. Consistently. This is the case that Stephen is making here, verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship of the host of heavens. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of, of Moloch and the star of Rephim and the images that made to worship. And then I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he's saying to them, essentially he says, don't you remember the reason that our people were put in exile in the first place? The reason that we were sent off into the wilderness is because we rejected the redeemer. We rejected the deliverer. He's saying you have a history of consistently rejecting the redeemer and replacing God's presence with idols. Verse 44. It says, and our fathers had a tent of, the, of witness in the wilderness. Just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in, brought in with a uh, Joshua, when they disposed the, the nations that God drove out before their fathers, so it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, uh, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heavens is your throne and the earth is your footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not, did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen's sermon, it concludes here by showing them again that Moses was their promised deliverer, that God has raised him up. And we've seen consistently that you have a history of rejecting the savior that God sends to you. And instead of worshiping God in the place that he dwells, we are consistently replacing him with idols. And so, he said, nowhere, uh, he says, you are consistently rejecting the deliverers, and, and he hasn't gotten here yet, but he's going to get to the point of saying, and you have rejected the Savior that God has sent us in Jesus. He's going to tell them that you are guilty of this. You have made an idol out of the temple, and you are guilty of idolatry, and you are guilty of crucifying your own Messiah. But notice here, up until this point, he hasn't gotten there yet. He's going to get there, but he hasn't got there. But up until this point, the crowd would have been able to, to yes and amen everything that he's saying. 
He hasn't said anything about the law or the temple or about Moses that they would have necessarily disagreed with. So what got Stephen in trouble wasn't the fact that he preached a sermon. What got Stephen in trouble wasn't the fact that he even preached a long sermon. What got him in trouble was the fact that he preached an applied sermon. God does not just deal in generalities. He doesn't just stay and say, we're talking about some kind of people over here. He says, no, you do this. This is not them that did this. This is you. You do this. And it's the same thing for us when we hear sermons. We can yes and amen certain things until the preacher gets to us. Right? Pride is bad. We go, yeah, amen. But what about your pride? Self-righteousness is bad, and we go, yes, get them, amen. But what about your self-righteousness? I'm talking about your self-righteousness. And then we go, oh, talking about me? Yes, it's talking to you. The Bible does not deal with generalities. God is not talking to some people. God is talking to you. God is talking to me. He's coming after your sin. He's coming after my sin. And Stephen here, he goes directly at them and comes after their sin. He pulls uh, the Paul Washer. I don't know if you know Paul Washer, but he's a great gospel preacher. And he preaches with uh, great conviction. So if you ever listen to a sermon, be ready to cry and repent and be ready for that. If you're not ready, don't listen to him. But for some reason, somebody had the bright idea to invite him to uh, speak at a youth conference. And so you can look this clip up on YouTube. And so he's preaching, laying out the gospel heavy, convicting them about their sins. And these kids are just clapping. They're just going at it. And Paul stops and he says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And that's what Stephen does here. He looks at them and he says, listen, I don't know if you understand this, but I'm talking not about your fathers in Israel of old. I'm talking about you. Chapter 7, verse 51. This is his application. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you've always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before him the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen here, he turns the tables on them. He says, you want to you talk about my sin? No, no, no. We're going to talk about your sin. You are a stiff-necked people. This stiff-necked people, it, it is the image of, that's used throughout the scriptures of lifting your head in defiance. As someone is pulling against you, you are pulling in the opposite direction. I got a puppy uh, like a month, month and a half ago, and sometimes I sit in the garage and she's on a leash and she'll tangle herself up under the table and I'll go to try to direct her so she can learn this. You came this way, so go that way. And as I try to turn her, she stiffs up. She doesn't want to go in the direction. Though I'm trying to help her, she doesn't want to go in my good, loving direction to free her. That's what Stephen is saying here. That's who you are. You are a stiff-necked people. God is trying to lead you in a loving, kind way that you should go and we push up against it. We defy him in that way. He says that we are uncircumcised in the heart, that we have a natural heart that has been hardened against God, unwilling to devote ourselves to God's covenant promises. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. He says, you always mute God's messengers. They're not talking about me. I'm talking about someone else. They're unwilling to believe the, and receive God's prophets and his redeemers and his deliverers. And he says that this, this is a generational problem. Just like your father's reject of Joseph and Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you are the same ones who killed Isaiah and Zechariah and John the Baptist and so many others. And these were all the men that God had sent to foretell of the righteous one. And he says to them that your sin is the same sin as the sin of Israel of old. You've rejected Jesus just like you rejected Joseph. You rejected Jesus just like you rejected Moses. You rejected the Messiah just like you rejected Abraham. He says, God raised Moses up for you. And Moses said that God was going to raise someone up that comes after me from my brethren. He says, you rejected the law because you rejected Jesus and Jesus is the sure fulfillment of the law. He says that you're the ones who rejected the temple because Jesus was God in the flesh. And instead of believing him, you are guilty of betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. He says, you did that. He puts it on them. Puts their sin right at their feet. He says, you murdered your Messiah on a cross rather than to bow to him as king. Uh, now, it's real easy for us here to... Uh, become a, a bit blinded by this and to think that, oh, I can't really believe that they would do something like this. And when we see these sorts of kind of things, we should take a moment to pause and uh, make sure that we examine ourselves that we don't fall into this same sort of trap of self-righteousness. I mean, people say all the time, if, if I was Adam, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Mm, no, you probably would have ate it faster. Yeah, uh, People say, if, if I was living with Jesus, I would have known he was the Messiah. I would have I known it was Judas the entire time. I would have called him out. Judas is you. We do that all the time. We try to put blame off. It's kind of like a, a defense mechanism of our sinful nature that whenever sin is exposed, whenever sin is called out, we start thinking about other people's sin and it's not my sin. I wouldn't do that. And I just want to say that if you come to that place where God is revealing your sin to you, that is a dangerous posture to be in. If God convicts you of sin, please do not callous your heart. The conviction of your sin by God is the mercy of God. It is an act of mercy. When God turns on the light and he exposes you for who you are, our natural reaction is to turn and to hide and to make excuses and to defend ourselves and try to uh, uh, be in control of the situation. But you cannot control your sin on your own. It's either going to kill you or you're going to give it to Jesus and let him be crucified for it. And so this morning, whether you are here, whether you are a believer or whether you are not a believer this morning, you need to beware. Sin wants you to make excuses, to excuse it away, to harden your heart towards sin, to resist the conviction of God's word and God's spirit. But do not reject God. Do not resist him. Do not reject him or his messengers. In fact, our prayer should be that of the prayer of David. Search me, O God. 
If you find anything that's evil and not like you, remove it. Take it away from me. That should be our prayer. So really quickly, as we're getting ready to wrap this up, just three things that I want us to look at to, as we talk about not resisting the Savior. Three things that can help us not resist the Savior. Here it is. Number one, we should submit to the rule of Christ. Submit to the rule of Christ. Cast all of your sin away from you, far from you, and live the life that God has intended for you to live, a righteous and holy life. Strive every day to kill your sin. The rule of Christ is good. And it is intended to bless us. And oftentimes I found that, at least in my own life, when I'm not submitting to the rule of Christ, when we are not submitting to the rule of Christ, that means we're not seeing the ruler correctly. We're not seeing Jesus rightly. But we should see him fully as he is. Here's our Christ. Listen to the words of scripture. This is our Christ. He says, come to me, all who are labor with a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy in my burden is light. This is why we should submit ourselves to the rule of Christ. When we see him for who he is, he offers us to come. He says, there's rest here. There's gentleness here. There's peace here. There's love in Christ, our ruler. And so the rule of Christ is not like the rules of the world. It's not like the rules that we've created in our own hearts. Jesus, our ruler, he's gentle and lowly, and he is the perfect ruler. You may have tried to run your own life and, and you can run on your life for as long as you want to but at the end of that road you will always find destruction. Come to Jesus. Come unto him. You will find rest for your weary souls. He's gentle. He's lowly. Run clearly to him. Secondly, we can stop resisting when we see the redemption of Christ and all of his glory. So you may say, well, Brother Preacher, I, I am a believer. I've seen the redemption of God, but ultimately we, we lose sight of that. Whenever we go after idols, we are rejecting Christ as our redeemer. We are no different than the Israelites of old making a golden calf for ourselves and saying that Christ is not sufficient. But only Christ, only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. So turn away from your idols and turn to Jesus. Doesn't matter. So when we turn to idols, any kind of idols that we may think to turn to, we are resisting Jesus as our redeemer and we are denying ourselves of the greatest joy and the greatest love in the universe. Don't resist his rule and don't resist his redemption. Remember, preach the gospel to yourself consistently over and over again. Remind yourself of the price that was paid for your salvation. This is why I love the fact that we do the Lord's Supper every Sunday when we come. We gather together as a people and we can see clearly in the elements the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the price that was paid for our redemption. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. 
it's real easy to kind of move on as we walk through this Christian life and forget that. But don't lose sight of the price that was paid for your redemption. He is a great redeemer. Remember that. Third and lastly, um, don't resist the rule. Don't resist his redemption. And, and don't resist, thirdly, his power. Don't resist his power. If, if you are a, a Christian and it doesn't matter what time that you are living in, if you ever come to a point in your Christian life where you think, you see what the events that are happening in our world and you think that we're living in a hopeless time and that this world is full of despair and that there is no hope, Beloved, you are forgetting the power of Jesus Christ. Just like the Israelites forgot the power of God through Moses as displayed in the wilderness, and as a result, they turned their hearts towards Egypt, he says here, and they made a golden calf for themselves. Just the same as the Sanhedrin refused to see the power of God in Jesus Christ and it resulted in them turning their hearts to the law and to the temple and ultimately making them murderers. Beloved, hear me, the power of God is no less powerful today than it was in the time of Moses. God's power is no less powerful today than it was in the time of the first century saints. This same Jesus that healed the sick and raised the dead and opened the blinded eye, the same Jesus, he is alive and well. And not only is he alive and well, but he's seated on his throne and he is the head of the body, the church. And if you are in Christ, he is the head of your life. And so at no point in time in your Christian walk, if you are a true believer who's been indwelled with the Holy Spirit, is there any time where you can come to say that there is a sin that you cannot overcome? The power of Christ, you have the power of Christ in you. And certainly his power is greater than any of your sin. That power is greater. The all-powerful, the all-knowing son of God is intimately leading his people today. He hasn't forgotten us. So we can come together as a, a body of believers, no matter how dark things may get in our lives, no matter how dark the world may seem, we can ensure that Jesus, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, he will carry us to the end. That's his promise. That he is working his will in us and that he will ensure the power of God is alive and well today, that he will ensure that every soul that he has called unto himself will come. They will come. Believe that. Trust his power. And when that last soul has come to Christ, he will come back triumphantly, gloriously, and take us with him, and we will be with him forever. That's good news. We have this hope. Trust in the power of God. And we, as a body of believers, we can come together and know that God is with us. He will be with us. We'll see that even next week when we look at the Stoning of Stephen, we will see that God is with us even in the midst of our suffering. So don't resist his rule. Don't resist his redemption and don't resist his power. Don't resist the rule of God. Submit humbly to him. And it's a good thing that God has called us together as a body of believers, a local believers. Don't resist the conviction of God when a brother or a sister calls you out. Embrace that. Know that God is sanctifying you through each other. It's good news.
So we have this hope, this hope in Jesus. And we want to be people like Stephen ultimately. And that's our prayer. We're going to pray now and pray that ultimately as we go out back into the world that we will be people like Stephen, to be bold in our witness for Jesus and to live for him powerfully and to know that come what may, he'll be with us. Let's pray. Father, we are ashamed to know how often we have rejected you and replaced you with idols. Help us to search ourselves. And wherever there is an idol on a throne that we would tear it down and replace you there. Put you, the living God, there. Help us to that end by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be people like Stephen that will boldly proclaim the word of God because even in the midst of persecution and suffering, we know that you've promised to be with us. Father, we pray that as the seed of the word has been watered and planted, that you, by the power of your spirit, will bring forth your increase. In Jesus' name, amen.